Hi there, I'm Winston. I'm here with my dad, David Moen, back for part two of our COVID episode, or two episodes. And we're going to go straight in with the question. There's been some controversy surrounding COVID numbers, how they're recorded and if they're accurate. Do you think the case rates we're told are reliable? I think the idea that um, a death is related within 28 days of a positive COVID test is is open to a little bit of inaccuracy. Um, and then you've got, you know, the other issues that go with um, prior conditions, comorbidities. I think the most reliable way to look at what's really going on in our society is to look at the um, mortality rate and seasonal mortality rate and the averages that go with it. Because... It's important to remember some 45,000 people die every month in the UK of our 62 million million population. So just saying that you died of COVID because you had a positive test doesn't mean you know, doesn't mean anything. You might have died a week later with flu. And so the average death rates, which are produced by the National Statistics Office, I think are the best indications of the severity of what we face. Um, and so I, I think that the reporting stats are crazy to say, 60 or 70 or 80,000 people have died of COVID means absolutely nothing. No reference points, no prior averages. What we should be talking about is the percentage of deaths that we're undergoing over the average death rate over a five-year average. And what's interesting is when you look at the first wave, predominantly those deaths took place above 60, more so above 70 and more so above 80. We weren't safeguarding our elderly sector of society and they suffered proportionally, and the majority of excess deaths came about because of that age spectrum. If you look at where we are right now, despite the numbers comparatively in terms of numbers infected, which is a function of two things, one is we test more, and the other is the young are more exposed, then naturally the mortality rate would be far lower as a percentage. And you can see that in the average death rates. We're at roughly 20% above the average weekly rate of death over five years at this time. And whilst that's not desirable, it certainly isn't the Spanish flu or the Black Plague, and we're not facing the annihilation of our population. We're facing a problem and a challenge. And the question then is how proportional are we in our response to it? And I think to date we haven't really had an effective or grand strategy. We've really just been relying on hope that we'd get through it and hope a vaccine would come soon enough. And that's not really how we should be coping with a situation like this. So... Do you think the case rates are reliable then, but just we are overcompensating for the deaths that we're experiencing? No, I'm saying that there obviously a statistic of someone who died within 28 days who has a positive test is a factual statement. Whether that has meaning is something completely different. And then the only way to look at that meaning is to look at average excess death rates. And they are available to us. They're published every week. And if we looked at that, we would really say that this was a rather extreme version of flu, not of the level that demands shutting down the whole economy and really putting into huge doubt our economic future. There's an argument that though there are similarities to flu, flu doesn't inundate the NHS to the same extent. And the problem is with inundation, not with the symptoms and death rate itself. What would you say to that? I completely agree. And what's interesting is there's a sort of two-part story to this is below a certain number when the number of ICU beds are sufficient 
to take the extreme level of illnesses, then essentially we'll have low death rates. What we saw in Wuhan was a saturation of the health system, and then people that should have survived didn't receive treatment and they died. And the danger in this pandemic is its speed of transmissibility and how quickly it then spreads to create inundation of the health service. Now, recognizing that, and you know that was the watchword of save the NHS in the first wave, and I'd like to point out that the NHS again is there to save us. So it should be an adapt and adroit system that recognizes that. I think it's completely unforgivable from the administration of the NHS and the health secretary to essentially be entering this inevitable second wave with a similar number of ICU beds, with the poor people on the front line who are probably exhausted and tired, multiply exposed to being infected, still there without a new force coming in as a reinforcement, without more beds, without the Nightingale hospitals opening. And I think there's going to be a massive backlash when everything is filled up and people are now, death rates go up when they shouldn't have done, because we should have planned for this. And we were well capable of, of operating within a much larger spectrum of severe cases. Unfortunately, we're not ready for it. It's quite difficult to increase ICU capacity when you're struggling to staff the hospitals without COVID. What do you think the best way is moving forward to increase staff? Well, it's hard to fight a war when you have a small army and half of it gets wiped out in the first encounter. And what you do is you raise another army. You bring in reinforcements, you enlarge the plans for your army. And in the same way, there should be an emergency response process. In the Telegraph today, there was a discussion over 40,000 ex-NHS workers and doctors have applied and only 5,000 have actually been granted. That's when people step forward and you integrate capable volunteers into the system. And we've had nine months since the first wave. We should have been enacting those strategies from that point onwards, knowing that the winter was coming and the height of a respiratory illness cycle was upon us. Do you think that those retired nurses and doctors are not being allowed to come back in because they themselves are at risk and would, though, in, you know, try and help the problem, with themselves succumb to the illness? Look, no. I think it's really simple. The bureaucracy of the NHS is preventing rapid response. And, then this is, and if there's ever a time to represent a top-down reformation of the NHS so it can really do what we would like it to do and be the best version of itself, it is to, to sweep aside this sort of committee-based administrative process where the administrators have paid a lot of money to be poor at what they do and the people at the bottom struggle to survive under the conditions imposed to them by an administrative set that don't really understand the problems beneath them. Just moving on a bit from the NHS now. What effect do you think COVID will have on international relations moving forward? Well, <laughs> it's a great question, Win. I, I do not subscribe to the concept that, you know, it's a short war. And I've used the analogy that, you know, people went to war in 1914 wanting to volunteer because they thought it'd be over by Christmas. And we entered this pandemic late. We were slow to realise its arrival, slow to respond and the next response is we've had short-termism thinking that it was only going to be one wave. Now we're surprised there's another wave. Now we think we're saved by the vaccine. And next is going to be the mutations that find their way around the majority versions of the vaccine, like the Oxford vaccine. Um, and so I think we really should be planning for a long three-year campaign of keeping our economy viable and, and vibrant when perhaps other economies didn't adapt as quickly and recognising that we've got a major sequential pandemic on our hands. Because what's going to happen is Britain will probably be really in the top three that vaccinate their population in time. 
And as long as we don't suddenly end up with a super radical version, which then inhibits that quickly, I think you know, we probably will get to the stage where we've created an inoculized UK population to this particular version and variant sequence. The problem comes as countries around us are slower to do so. As more of their population exposed, they then have more mutations and more likelihood that something no longer has an S spike but uses a P spike or you know whatever letter you choose in the viral vocabulary of of armory, and and the result of that is we're now going to have to learn to lock our borders, we're going to have to learn to track and trace, which we didn't do after billions and billions of failed investment, because we're going to have to be tracking new variants as they come into a system which was inoculating against an old variant system. We've got to develop all these tools to create the ability to have continuance and momentum to our economy. And the countries that don't are going to get left behind because you won't be able to travel to them. They won't be able to link to the international world. So I think we've got an awful lot, lot more separatism taking place. And in the big picture, I think that, as you, you know, we've talked about, the Chinese are entirely responsible for what took place. And as the reality you know, really grips that hope isn't going to come charging over the hills. It's not snap your fingers and back to where we were and we lost a year. That This is really a sustained economic challenge with the real impacts of ultimately debt crisis and you know, stock markets not going up but going the opposite way because in truth companies don't have a fraction of the value that they think they do right now, investors think they do. I think they'll be looking for some scapegoats and that focus of resentment will be their own governments are failing to respond in the appropriate ways at times and the, their governments will then create China or put the light on China deservedly for being the cause of it and then the world will be far more bifurcated. It's already becoming bifurcated but it's become super bifurcated. So I expect to see over the next three years severe bifurcation of the Chinese Western world and some of the emerging market countries that just haven't vaccinated in time to be petri dishes that bring in new infections. And it could well be, there's always a hidden lining in this. And one of them is the realisation that we are one population. As long as there is one person with an infection that can pass it on to another, we're all at risk because they could mutate into something that then starts the cycle again. So in a strange way, it's going to really force the countries that are developed, like Britain, to get to the vaccine first and create a herd immunization through that process to then turn around and inoculate its nearest neighbors and the ones outside so i think it could be a, a vast moment for humanity but an awful lot of bumps on the way you were talking a bit about a scapegoat there and talking about china being that scapegoat it's quite interesting to see you know a couple of years ago there wasn't this level of anti-chinese or anti-ccp uh, opinion but now more and more it seems as a result of this and kind of the, the spotlight being focused on China and then issues like the Uyghurs being being brought to the fore, it seems that a lot more people are a bit more cautious when it comes to China. Do you think that would have happened with or without COVID? Do you, or do you think COVID so, w- was needed to catalyse that kind of spotlight well, to focus attention on the, the government's actions? In it, My short answer, it was happening anyway, but COVID accelerated it or as I like to call it, the Wuhan virus. Because traditionally... Please don't call it the Wuhan virus. Traditionally, it's named for where it came from. okay, we cannot call it... We'll call it it COVID. Cannot call it the Wuhan virus. Um, So the the process of polarisation was really accelerated correctly by Trump's realisation that America faced a strategic challenger. And America created and accelerated the trade war, and China wasn't doing well from it. So one of the interesting things is if you were playing Inspector Cluedo and, you know, who done it, the motivation would be 
clear that China would benefit from constraining and constricting its greatest competitors' growth, which it's achieved. So I think that's a pretty first key moment. What happened through the COVID crisis or the COVID crisis process is that, again, we saw the CCP cover up the process taking place internally and encourage it spread internationally. It's very clear that even if it came out of a bat cave, they then took an advantage of an opportunity to make sure that we suffered unduly. And that, you know, is the, the lowest level of recognition that we have a problem. The next one is the recognition that bought the World Health Organization, that everyone looked to for leadership, and they used that organization to cover whatever they'd done in preventing the awareness from increasing. And the third issue that, you know, is just, you know, interesting is that in this period of crisis and and focused by Western governments on their own internal problems, China used that to be aggressive along every point on its borders against India in the Himalayas. Um, it managed to break its agreements with Britain over Hong Kong. Um, and so you can see aggression that was related to opportunity relating to the crisis that they'd caused. All of those things changed the colored glasses people were wearing. You know, when Trump started the trade war, he focused America to its competitors. The Europe and even Britain under Cameron were just still kowtowing to the Chinese thinking, we want to trade with you, ignoring all the evidence of what this organization, this nation really was, which was by trading with them, we were making them stronger so they could run us over. And I've never seen such self-sabotage. And I remember speaking publicly in front of a Chinese delegation and a UK trade um, um, group saying, you know, what are we doing? Essentially, by working with the Chinese, we are selling our future for our nation and children by making them stronger. And their values are the opposite of ours. There is no way that their mechanisms of centralized control can live coincident with democracy. You talked a little bit about the WHO there. Um, and there were some rumors that perhaps they, they helped to cover up the spread of the virus from China and cover up you know, how bad it was. What would you say to that? What do you think? Well, I think it starts beyond that. I think they were very slow to talk about you know, its spread. And the Chinese had huge influence from you know, its head to other elements in terms of how that information migrated. And when you're looking for the WHO to be your early warning system, you can really see how by taking hold of that organization, the CCP benefited enormously. I think their greatest coup, and you just joked about it, but I'm going to say it again, is that how they managed to change the name of this virus. Because every day we say COVID, we forget the fact it came from China. And therefore, it was an act of God rather than intentional action. And the Chinese had a massive amount to do with how it was named. And that was the beginning of really their obfuscation over its origins and what happened. And Trump was right to identify the World Health Organization as being controlled by the Chinese. What he was wrong to do was to pull out. And what Britain was right to do was to step in with more funding. Because you can't remove yourself from, from international organizations and leave the Chinese holding the wheel. You've got to fight them within the organization to bring about the rebalancing. And it, Trump didn't understand that. And it was great to see Britain step in and do that. I think, you know, when you call it the Wuhan virus, I, we, we joke about it. But I feel as if calling it COVID is far better because Wuhan virus can be a foundation 
for blame and racism that isn't necessarily true because it's all speculation at the moment so I think calling it the Wuhan virus can be a little bit of a dangerous d- dangerous tool there um, go on excuse me woke alert <laughs> I'm just voicing my opinions uh, woke alert um, I wanted to just take us and transport us to a Ouija concentration camp and ask them how they feel about the woke values of our society and would they like to adopt them and I think we can safely say that the woke priority system is very far down their list of seeking freedom. And so wokeness concerns me not because of the ideas within it. It concerns me because it fails to identify the blunt reality. The blunt reality is this came from China. There is no doubt about it. In the history of viruses, we call it the Russian pandemic, the Spanish pandemic, even though it came from Oklahoma. It got the name of the Spanish pandemic. It had a place. And actually, for, for calling it COVID, it just looks like an act of God rather than an intentional you know, mechanism whereby it was created or it was released or it was its conditions around which it was spread were accelerated by behaviours of the Chinese government. So I, I think, I think you know, if we wish to execute our freedoms, we need to start learning how to defend them. And that means identifying who our enemy really is. And we are going through this not by a random act of nature but by a series of actions and conscious decisions taken by the CCP. You talked about wokeness there, and I think sometimes wokeness can be a bit too extreme. But in this case, I think involving the naming of such a big thing on the world stage at the moment, the fact that it isn't called Wuhan is good because it doesn't target the blame at a specific racial group. And you talked about the Ouija's there a little bit, and I'm not saying you know, that's good or anything. I, I think that's an awful thing that's happening. Um, and... But just because the Chinese government is doing something wrong in their country that should not be sanctioned doesn't mean that we should label the pandemic as the Wuhan virus, which does have connotations um, of racism and could be labelled as that and then could turn into something that is a bit of a weapon in, so, against immigrants or against immigration. I'm sorry to say itself. this. I don't, want, I don't think it should be called the Wuhan virus because the Chinese essentially incarcerate and... Um, torture Ouija's in camps I'm saying it should be called the Wuhan virus because it came from China it came from Wu. we know that there is no doubt and every time we back away from that reality we give them ground and that ground starts with our failure and intention to see what is to see an act of aggression and not recognize it every time we turn our backs on an act of aggression we await the next one if there was ever an intentional process by the Chinese to commit an act of aggression to the West by releasing this agent upon us, and I'm, I'm being hypothetical, I'm absolutely convinced the breakdown of, of the world order which allowed that started with the chemical red line in Syria that Obama failed to enact. It was then reinforced by the use of Novichok in Salisbury by Putin. In the Cold War paradigm, nuclear weapons would have rained down the next day. That was an act of pure war, weapons of mass destruction used in another country. Now, because we didn't act, because we didn't face our opposition and call a spade a spade because we were scared of offending someone, we broke down the protective mechanisms by which we could have even stop this by declaring our intention not to accept such an outcome. And so every time we erode those barriers, those boundaries, we make ourselves weaker. 
And so in the process of accepting the wrong name, the name where it, that obfuscates where it came from, we have weakened ourselves. And we face many more challenges from China, as the Hong Kong Chinese now know. They have been annexed in the same time, and they have been completely terrorized and kowtowed into submission, and they're not coming out. Generations of free-trading, creative, democracy-orientated Chinese have been eradicated through their annexation with China. It's a terrible thing to see. Because we're not there, we can forget it. These are events that we saw in the 30s, with the run-up to Germany into 1939. It's happening exactly the same way. And if they don't make a scream on the inside, scream to recognize what's happening, scream to react, we give them space to create the next act of aggression. So that's why I have a problem with the word woke in this particular context. Moving on from our old versus young debate there. How bad do you think the pandemic is going to get before it gets better? I think in Britain, and you know, but I think in, in all Western countries, we are going to see our health service saturated in the next month. If you look at the statistics and you look at, you know, just the, the, the whole algorithm of numbers, I don't think lockdowns are an effective way to control the mechanism of spread. Um, and I think what's going to happen, the government does under its sage um, advisors. So they're going to say, well, the lockdown wasn't draconian enough. So as a response of the overwhelming of our hospitals, I think we're going to see some extremely new levels and tiers and ultimately see the police on the street stopping cars, asking where you're going, because I don't see a way out of this until late into April. So we have four months of the darkest times of the spread of this virus with our hospitals overwhelmed and you know, the vaccine only incrementally increasing herd immunity. Playing the devil's advocate here, you're saying you're not a fan of lockdown, but it could be argued that without lockdown, the services will be inundated completely and then more deaths will occur that are not a result of COVID. And that's the situation that we're facing. And even with the tier systems, people travel outside their tiers often and that just leads to further spread and therefore they're ineffectual. You have a very good point. Um, and, and where we are now leaves us only one choice, draconian lockdown, separation of individuals and stopping the spread. That's not what we I would have done if I'd got control of the strategy or been advising on the strategy, as I've talked about in my blog since March. But now we're here. Draconian lockdown is the only conclusion with the way of thinking about it they're going to go to, which is a separation of individuals and households to an extreme measure. And I think we could well see that in the months ahead. Just very briefly, because we're, we're slowly running out of time with our, our debates on wokeness. Do you think there will be a shift in government from Conservative to Labour because of the handling of the pandemic no, in the future? Uh, no, I think every Western government has not reacted well to this process. And one of the problems is this is a wartime paradigm. It's a large entropy effect. In wars, we develop wartime mechanisms to adapt our systems to move faster, to focus on strategic challenges and to hopefully overcome each element of that. Because this is, inverted commas, a peacetime problem, which it isn't in my opinion, we've been slow to adapt. And I think what's relevant is that Britain is in a relatively good place. We've done, and to Boris's credit, you know, 
one of the things that we have shown is speed of adaptation and creativity in the production of the Oxford virus and with the Pfizer, with the Pfizer virus giving it you know, the release protocols into our vaccination programs before anyone else. That's a major feather in our cap. It shows the potential Britain has, but that's only just a piece of the a piece of the battle to be won. So I think, but I do think that if any country, any country's government in the West can adapt, it's the British government because we've been through a Brexit process. We've released our creativity. Right brainness has been to dominate the government process, and so that's actually when those systems really benefit um, a country. Well, I think that's about it from us now. Fantastic chat, Stan. I had a nice little debate there on the on the Wuhan virus and covered some nice topics as well. Always good to hear you speak. And I'd shake your hand, but we're not on video. So here we are. Thanks, Winnie. Anyone who's got any complaints over my woke, my woke views, contact Winston. If you have any questions, go to Dad's website, www.davidmurrin.co.uk and we can feature them on our next episode. Contact him through his email. Thanks for listening.